The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 16. Glory to you, O Lord. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. If there is ever a day in the church that is a day for joy, it is, of course, this day, Easter Day. Which makes very interesting to me, in a way, the fact that in our Gospel reading for this Easter Day, which is Mark's Gospel's telling of the story of that first Easter joy, is not once, not ever mentioned or even between the lines hinted at. Instead, in Mark's gospel, Easter morning begins with resigned grief, moves to alarmed confusion, and ends with wordless fear. Let's do some Easter Bible study. Let's look at Mark's Easter verse by verse and see what we can see. Mark 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was over. A quick couple of notes. Jesus died, of course, on a Friday. The Jewish Sabbath was Saturday, except the Jewish Sabbath actually began on the sundown of the day before, began with sundown on Friday. And for observant Jews, the Sabbath, starting at sundown on Friday, was a day for rest and worship, period. It was not a day for work of any kind, and burying someone was regarded as work. But with some haste and a little help from a politically connected and kind friend named Joseph, those of Jesus' followers who hadn't bailed on him, pretty much women, managed to get his body down from the cross and into a tomb before sunset on that Friday, but they didn't have time to do it right, which in those days would have included washing the body of dirt and grime and Jesus' case, of course, blood, and combing the grit, and in Jesus' case, matted blood out of his hair and beard, and pouring aromatic spices like myrrh over the body, and then gently massaging it into the skin, and in Jesus' case, the wounds. And then at last, wrapping at least the hands and feet, if not the entire body, with cloth, generally linen cloth, before finally putting a linen cloth or napkin over the face. 
In Mark's telling, which is the earliest one of the Gospels, pretty much none of that had been done on Friday, the only exception being that Joseph had wrapped the body in cloth when he took it down from the cross to move it to the tomb. But there hadn't, in Mark's telling, been time before sunset on Friday evening and Sabbath rest to do anything else. And so as soon as the Sabbath was over, the women bought some spices And then first thing of the day, they decided to work through their stages of grief the same way many of us still do, by keeping busy doing something that needs to be done. And it was Easter morning. It was the first Easter morning. But Easter wasn't something they were thinking about in their minds or feeling in their hearts. Rather, busying themselves doing what needed to be done, they were feeling what they were feeling and thinking what they were thinking because of the seeing they had seen with their own eyes. Jesus had not just died, he had died brutally, horribly. And so many things they had so hopefully found themselves hoping for in his presence, had died with him. And so says Mark, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb to do what needed to be done. And when they got there, On the way to getting there, they were saying to themselves, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? A reminder, it's Easter morning here, right? I mean, hallelujah, right? Well, as it turns out, no, not right, at least not yet here early Easter morning in Mark. For the women at this point are not on their way to worship the risen Lord with hallelujahs, but rather to finish burying a dead one with tears. And, Mark adds on the way, they were wondering, how are we going to do what needs to be done with that darn stone there? It's me thinking about the number of times I've wasted time wondering and worrying how I was going to get something done, only to discover later that in the ways and means of God's plans, the thing I was so worried about on the, didn't actually need my doing because God already had it covered or in this case, uncovered. And so, verse 4, when they looked up, looked up from their worries, they saw that the stone, which is very large, therefore had been the source of their worries, had already been rolled back. Years back, uh, without having given it much thought, I think I used to assume that the stone was rolled away so that what? So that Jesus could get out. I've come to think that's exactly not what I think. I mean, in John's Gospel, for example, the risen Christ shows up later in locked rooms without even opening doors, which means that neither stone walls nor stone tombs are barriers to him. Note to self, concrete vaults and oak caskets and six feet of soil aren't barriers to the Lord of Easter either. The stone wasn't rolled back so that he could get out. It was rolled back so that they could get in. For death is that veil beyond which we cannot see. The stone was rolled back on Easter morning 
so that they could see. Verse 5, as they entered the tomb, entered it, of course, still intent on doing something that didn't need doing, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. Matthew and John, in their Gospels, call him an angel, and I quite imagine that he was. But Mark maybe is reminding us that angels don't necessarily, every time they appear, necessarily look like angels. Look, Mom, no wings, this angel had said before leaving home this morning, to appear to the woman looking like, says Mark, a young man. Reminds me of the verse in Hebrews, be sure to show hospitality to strangers because by doing so, some have actually entertained angels without even knowing it. For angels, it turns out, apparently don't necessarily always look like angels. They might look like, I don't know, maybe they might look like that guy sitting beside the stoplight with a cigarette and a cup of McDonald's coffee and everything he owns in an old shopping cart beside him. Back to verse 5, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Telling and hearing the story when we tell it and hear it, which is to say telling and hearing it today after it's been being told for almost 2,000 years now, it's hard, it's hard for us to find the story alarming, right? Although... Well, next week, Kathy and I are hoping to go to Winterset to visit the grave of Grandma Jean and her dearly beloved, her Paul, on what would have been their 80th anniversary. They were married on April 9, 1941. I was wondering what it would be like if, when we got there, their graves were dug up and their vaults and caskets were opened up and a young guy with a robe, was sitting on a pile of dirt to the right side, looking as if he'd been waiting for us. I imagine in that version of the scene that Mark's word, alarmed, might be an alarming understatement. Verse 6, the young man in white but without wings said to them, Do not be alarmed, for you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. And then here comes Mark's version of the very first Easter sermon ever preached. He has been raised. He's not here. Look, there's the place they laid him. And the, presumably the women did look then to see what we two millennia later would surely give anything to have seen, except apparently two, they didn't actually see anything at all beyond what only their eyes could see. And what their eyes could see was nothing in the tomb. They didn't yet see that seeing nothing in the tomb was, in fact, to see everything. Everything they could ever hope for. And even things they hadn't even yet begun to think of even hoping for. So the first Easter sermon is preached in verse 6, but it kind of fell flat. It's a tough crowd. They knew what they had seen. And they had no idea what they were now seeing for what, in fact, they were seeing in the tomb that now held nothing to be seen was Easter. The Easter which Jesus had multiple times explicitly promised them, which this young man now explicitly reminds them. 
But what they were now thinking and feeling was anything but, Alleluia, Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. What they were now feeling, rather, is whatever it is one feels when what one is thinking is, Oh my God, no. Verse 7, that first ever Easter sermon continues. It's a two-part sermon. It continues with homework. An assignment given. Go, the young man in white but without wings says to them, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Interesting, right? I mean, Peter was one of the disciples, right? Well, of course, yes. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Except what? Except that some 50 or so hours ago, sometime between late Thursday night and early Friday morning, Peter had resigned. Remember? He'd been asked, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? Peter, afraid, had said, no, I am not. And then a second time he was asked, and again and louder had said, no, I'm not. And then a third time he was asked, and this time he swore, he, he, he cursed for added emphasis. And he said, no, insert your favorite curse, no. I have no idea who Jesus even is. I am not one of his disciples. And then the cock had crowed and Peter had run out and wept bitterly, says Mark. And now Sunday comes and the young man in white but with no wings says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he'll see them in Galilee, just like he promised. You see what's going on here, surely? I'm not one of his disciples, Peter swore, resigning his commission, if you will. But here in that first Easter sermon's homework assignment, the women are told to go tell him, that he's recommissioned. Yes, he'd stumbled, he'd messed up, he'd screwed up for sure, but he's still part of the plan. Note to self, so are you. In spite of what you've done or left undone, for the plan is to work with sinners whose sins are forgiven them. Mark 16, verse 8, So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that, of all places, is not only where our reading from Mark this morning ends, that, if all places, is where Mark's entire original gospel actually ends. The women ran from the tomb, terrified, and said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, of course, if you look in your Bibles, you will see some more verses after Mark 16, verse 8, but there's not a single scholar I respect who thinks that Mark actually wrote any of those following verses. They were written later, rather, added on later, by somebody else who presumably said to himself, they ran from the tomb, terrified, said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Who the heck ends a story like that? Well, apparently Mark does. 
And of course we do also have Matthew, Luke, and John as well. And from them, as well as from history, we know, we know for sure that the women finally didn't remain silent. They told people, nor did they remain afraid, for Easter did finally find its way into their minds and hearts and mouths, and when it did, they found their hallelujahs. So obviously, and of course, fear and silence aren't where the story ends, but fear and silence were where the story first went, and fear and silence, too, were where Mark's gospel, anyway, does end, which leaves it feeling kind of unresolved, unfinished. It's just that that is where Mark is finished. Which, over the years, is a detail that I've decided I actually rather like. For among other reasons, because it sounds authentic to me. And it sounds, I've been thinking, particularly authentic this year. This Easter of 2021. This Easter of many, yet so many, still unresolved and even frightening tensions. Pandemically, racially, economically, politically, globally, environmentally. Marx is the gospel that this year feels so authentic to me because Marx is the one that doesn't leave us with all tensions and fears resolved as the disciples or the women or anyone lay their eyes upon the risen Jesus. Marx's gospel, rather, is the one that ends with a young preacher's promise reminding them of Jesus' own thrice-stated promise that they would that they will see him again, risen from the dead. And the women then, representing all who hear the promise then and now, are confused, scared even, because they don't know for sure what to make of either the promise or the nothing in the tomb that is all that they can see. Well, the only thing they know for sure being that which they don't see is Jesus. What is authentic, of course, is that this Easter, this Easter of 2021, I don't see Jesus either. Which is why I like Mark's gospel. For it more clearly than any of them reminds me, reminds us that Jesus, even risen, for now doesn't dwell in a place where our eyes can hold fast to his face. Rather, for now, for now, risen from the dead, Jesus dwells in the place where our faith and our hope hold fast, not to his face, but rather to his promises, including his promise that he is with us, even if we can't see him through the presence of his Holy Spirit, and his promise, too, that we will see him, eyes to face, when, by grace through faith, we get to where we're going which is the place he has gone before us.
Mark says it was to Galilee. Which, of course, is to say, I think that where Jesus has gone before us is back home. And when we get there, when we do at last with our eyes see him, we will know that we at long last are home too. In the meantime, not with our eyes seeing, we believe. We hope, and we do what he assigned us to do in his last sermon before Easter. We love, and in loving we show the world. We show everyone we can see. We show them in word and deed that their home, their true home, their heart's home, is with Jesus too. Alleluia. Amen.